As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Oh, can you say thank you for listening? Oh, that's nice. Because people will want to hear it. Yeah. You want to... Thank you for listening. What did you say? Thank you for listening. Good job. Can you say... This is Danny in the Valley. This is the Valley and Daddy. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. And don't worry, what you heard was not put there by mistake. That was my son Cole, who is two and a half years old. And what he said his cute little jumble of words, is exactly the type of thing that is of most interest to this week's guest. Alison Gopnik is a cognitive psychologist who has spent 20 plus years studying babies and young children, specifically how they learn. And she's doing that because she thinks that these little people could be the key to unlocking the next big leap in artificial intelligence, which, if you think about it, makes sense. This, for example, is my four-month-old, Jet, expressing his displeasure about I'm not sure what. Now, if his brother is any guide, before long he'll start speaking, then stringing words together, and pretty soon expressing full understandable thoughts and the speed with which that happens and the relatively low amount of data that he experiences in order to make those connections is in computing terms miraculous because right now even the best AI systems need orders of magnitude more data to train on to get to a similar place so converting babies' brains into algorithms is effectively what Gopnik is working on And increasingly, it's an area that the likes of Google and other leaders in the field of AI are looking at as providing potentially the next big portal to true advances in the field. So that is what I wanted to talk to Gopnik about. Last week, I headed over to her house in Berkeley. Danny Fortson. Danny! Oh, jeez. Sorry. I couldn't 
completely, I completely forgot I didn't have it on my calendar, but come on in. You sure? Yeah, absolutely. I really, so I think it was last week or the week mm-hmm. before there was this, the launch of the Stanford Human-Centered AI Institute mm-hmm. about trying to figure out how to create artificial intelligence in a way that is good for humans and makes sense and is not going to be, you know, lead to the Terminator apocalypse. <laughs> and you were on stage talking about your work, which I thought was super interesting, which is, and you'll explain it better than me, but basically trying to model AI on babies and how they develop. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So one of the things that's led to the great renaissance of AI over the last you know, five years or so, or maybe 10 years now. Because yeah, there's been many, many, many false dawns. The many false dawns in the past. Well, here's, here's what I would say is a short version of what happened is that for a long time, what people in AI were trying to do was to really focus on adult knowledge and sort of handcraft the equivalent of the knowledge that adults have and put it into a computer. And the big change was realizing that you didn't actually have to handcraft all the knowledge if you had a computer that was sufficiently good at learning. So the recent work has taken ideas about learning that were already around in the 80s and shown that when you have big enough data sets and you have powerful enough computers, you can actually learn a lot of what you need to learn to be able to solve intelligent tasks like playing Go or chess or translating and so forth. So there's been this really interesting switch from thinking about knowledge to thinking about learning. But I think increasingly, people in AI are realizing that they're coming up against a lot of barriers because the techniques that they've used just aren't powerful enough to do the kind of learning that humans do. And of course, the people who really do most of that learning are babies and young children. They're the best learners that we know of in the universe. And what psychologists and cognitive scientists like me have been doing for the past 20 years is showing just how powerful those learning mechanisms are. And also for the past 20 years or so, describing them in computational terms. So we have this great resource, which is that we actually have good computational accounts of what it is that babies and young children are doing that let them learn so much so quickly and so effectively. So turning kind of young child baby learning into effectively into equations. That's right. Exactly. Now, here's the catch. There's always a catch. So here's the catch. (laughs) The catch is we've been doing this for the past 15 or 20 years the kinds of models that come out of looking at babies and young children, even though we can start to formalize them, turn them into Mm. some math, are very hard to actually implement on current computers. And the problem is that they're very, very computationally expensive. You very rapidly get Mm. what people call a sort of exponential explosion if you actually try to implement these ideas on real computers. So we're in this interesting position now where We have these techniques like deep learning and deep reinforcement learning and adversarial networks and so forth that are really good at solving very specific problems with a lot of data and a lot of compute power, but they can't do things like make good generalizations. So for instance, if you give object recognition systems, current object recognition systems, just slightly different uh, example, they don't do very well. And they'll say that something that we don't think is even vaguely like a cat is a cat. So they're not very good at generalizing. If you even take like these wonderful systems that have done things like learn how to play Go or learn how to play chess, um, if you presented those systems with a game that was just slightly different, 
They would have to start all over again. Almost. And they would have to crunch through unimaginable amounts of data to get good at any of that. Exactly. And part right. of the reason why they could solve Go in chess, for example, was that because we have very defined rules for those games, the computer could actually generate its own examples and generate millions and millions right. and millions and millions of examples. Now, if you look at kids, they're exactly the opposite because from very small amounts of data, they can make really impressive generalizations. They can come up with brand new ideas. And in work that we've done in my lab, we've shown sometimes they can, they're better at coming up with unlikely ideas than adults are. Mm. So somehow they're taking, they're taking relatively small amounts of data and they're using it to build structures that allow them to, to generalize really well. And the question is, what is it that they are doing that's allowing them to do that? And could we use some of that to program computers and develop an AI that was more effectively like right. human AI? Yeah, because I think, I don't know if you were there for one of the presentations at this Stanford thing was a guy looking at speech, natural language processing or speech. And he put up a graphic that showed effectively to get to the same level of speech capability, a program would have to go through something like a thousand times more data than a baby just to get to basic syntax for saying a simple sentence or something. Exactly. So Um, babies have like, you know, the baby brain is a, or the brain generally is the best supercomputer. Yeah. And we think it's not just that there's more cycles somehow, but that the very way that they're trying to solve the problems is different. So there's three things that I think are are really characteristic about what the babies and children are doing. And we've discovered this through doing Mm -hmm. this empirical work over the last 15 years that aren't characteristic of the the most recent iterations of AI, although people had used them in the past. My acronym for this is, as always with anything to do with children, it's a MESS. So MESS stands for Model Building, Exploration, and Social Learning. So one thing that children do is they actually build abstract models. My first book was called the scientist in the crib, what I've been arguing again for for 30 years, and I think has become a dominant view in the field of cognitive development, is that you could think about children as being like little scientists. They have hypotheses, they have theories about the world, they test them against the data. But a theory is a kind of abstract model that lets you generalize a lot. That's exactly what a theory is. It lets you do things like make counterfactual inferences, say, if the world had been different, what would have happened? Right. And that's much more powerful kinds of generalization than you get from what the current systems are doing, which is essentially just sort of pulling out statistical generalizations from the data. So you could think about it partly as being a difference between looking at a bunch of data and seeing all the correlations and actually figuring out the causal structure right. of that that underlies that that data. So being able to build this kind of abstract model of how the world works, instead of just saying, here's the patterns in the data, gives you a lot more power. And we have a lot of evidence that babies and children are doing that. And we even have some ways of characterizing that formally and computationally. So that's one thing that kids do. A second thing that kids do that current computers don't is they perform experiments, except that when the kids do it, we call it getting into everything. If you look at any two-year-old, they're spending a lot of time and energy, often at the risk of their future survival, just curious. I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old. I'm right in the midst of it. (laughs) (laughs) So you know, there's something sort of, there's this interesting kind of paradox, which Mm -hmm. is that we have to put so much work into just keeping these babies out of trouble. Why would they be designed that way? You know, they could be designed so that they, they have 
some of these executive function abilities that we have as adults, they could be better at taking care of themselves. But there seems to be this real trade-off. People sometimes call it an explore versus exploit trade-off, where the things that you need to do to just go out in the world and get as much data and as relevant data as possible are sort of the opposite of the things that you need to do to act really swiftly and yeah. effectively. Yeah. Um, and the two-year-olds and babies and young children in general seem to be really designed to be variable and noisy and curious and have all these mm -hmm. characteristics that are very bad if you're trying to get your jacket on and get out to preschool in the yeah. morning, but are very good if you're trying to figure out the nature of the universe. And again, that kind of active learning is something that we've just been starting to explore and explore computationally. So there's work, for instance, that shows that even very young babies are already sensitive to information gain. So they'll pay, they'll look the longest at things that are actually going to give them the most new information defined in a formal uh, way. Oh, really? Yeah. It's actually a sweet spot. The paper by my colleague Celeste Kidd here, here at Berkeley, it's called the Goldilocks effect. There's a particular amount of information that's not so much that you're overwhelmed, but is enough to give you something new. And right. babies seem to be really... Even, you know, nine-month-olds are really tuned to that amount of information they can get. From I also that. have a four-month-old. Oh, okay. So, so like, you've this probably is a... seen your four-month-old, you know, kind of staring Well, around. he's really, yeah, he's starting to get interested in food. Mm -hmm. He'll start just, he'll when we're eating, he'll just stop what he's doing and just stare, like follow the piece of food from the plate exactly. to the mouth and just is trying to figure out what that is. But it's, he is starting to all of a sudden pay attention to stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that what we've shown is that that paying attention isn't just random. He's paying attention to the things that are actually most likely to teach him something new, given what he already right. knows. And again, that's not something that you see in current current AI. Current AI is kind of locked into its own mind and not going out and actually getting new Well, it's necessarily, the the, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but necessarily it's set up to be very operate in controlled environments if you're mm -hmm. talking about things like machine learning or you know we just did a an ai video talking about how say robots can be great in mm -hmm. a warehouse in a controlled environment but if you just put down like a little two by four they're just completely flummoxed they don't exactly. know what to do and that they can't you know once you put in one variable all bets are off yeah exactly so this is this they're very good at doing very specific, well-defined kinds of tasks, but they're not very good at generalizing or changing. Right. One of the one of the examples I'd like to give is brilliantly, amazingly, a computer like AlphaZero can play computer chess and can now beat the best grandmasters. But something they couldn't play is Addy chess. So Addy chess is what my three-year-old grandson Addy, the way he plays chess, you can actually see the Addy chess pieces oh, yeah. right there. Yeah. Um, so the way you play Addy chess is you take all the pieces, you throw them into the wastebasket, and then you pull them out of the wastebasket and carefully put them back more or less in the right places on the <laughs> on the chessboard, and then you throw them all back in the right. wastebasket again and repeat. And I think there's two things that are interesting about Addy chess. One of them is that kind of physical manipulation of objects is something that even the best robots that we have now aren't even in the ballpark yeah. of being able to do. So being able to deal with, you know, the random variation and where it ends in the wastebasket and figure out how to get it back again, they're really, really, that's a really challenging problem. But then the other thing that I think in a way is even more profound about Addy Chess is that he's making up a new objective for himself that no one has ever tried to accomplish before, right? Yeah. So with almost all the techniques that we have now, what we can do is we can say, here's the goal, here's the objective, 
here's a bunch of feedback about what the objective is. Mm -hmm. You know, here's your score, maximize your score. And again, that's very impressive. That And here's a big data set to crunch through exactly. your train on. And the impressive thing is that the machines can actually do as much as they can, given that information. Yeah. But what people, including very young children, can do is set up a new objective. Say, how what would happen if I tried to do... If I right. tried to do this. And they can do that in this active exploratory way that's right. kind of mysterious because some of it looks like it's very random. But on the other hand, it also looks like it's systematic. It looks as if the kids are exploring things in a way that's really helping them, helping them learn and helping them learn something new. So that's a second piece that the kids have that the current AIs don't. And then a third piece is that the kids are learning in a social context. So they're learning from us. So you were right. giving the example about, you know, the three-month-old being interested in food. And part of the reason for that is, look, these human beings around me are doing this thing. Yeah. Why? What is it? Can I do it too? Should I do it too? How does it work? And other experiments that we've done, again, we can formally model some of this, show that children are are very sensitive to other people and very good at learning from other people. And again, right. that's something that current, although people are trying, that's something that current AI is not particularly good at doing. So it sounds like what you're talking about is curiosity and trying to basically code curiosity. So one of the things that we've actually, we're actually working on at the moment, we're collaborating with, with some of the computer scientists at Berkeley, particularly Pulkit Agrawal and, and Deepak Pathak, and they designed a really beautiful system to have curiosity based based on developmental psychology, to have what they called curiosity based reinforcement learning. So the idea is in typical reinforcement learning, you just say, "Here's the score. You get the score went up. The score went down." Right. But in this case, you actually get rewarded for making prediction for have, making predictions that don't fit with what you already know. So if you go to a part of the space, for example, where something unexpected happens, mm. then you go back and try and figure out what that unexpected thing was and make sense of it. And that looks much more like what the kids are doing. And getting in fact, into stuff. And... Yeah, getting into stuff. And in fact, we're currently setting up environments where we can literally test four-year-olds and the curiosity-based AIs on exactly the same problem and record what they do and see what right. the analogies and differences are. And you said you've been working on this for 20-ish years? Yeah, so... Uh, for, I'm, so I'm curious because yeah. I don't know if talking about the kind of, you know, the AI is going to take over the world has been a story that's bubbled right. up and gone away, I don't know, countless times since the 50s. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, when you started do, working on this stuff, mm -hmm. were people kind of like, that's kind of interesting theory, but, you know, you're just off in the wilderness. Well, it's interesting because when we started, we started working, I guess now it's, I guess it's, it's about 2000 was when we were, right. when we were first starting this work. So we've been doing the work, of course, about developmental psychology for my entire career. But around 2000, there was a, a whole flurry of really interesting work by, for example, Judea Pearl, who's won the Turing Prize for this, about causal graphical models. So the idea was that you could, at least in the case of causal inference, you could provide computational accounts of how you could learn a causal, an abstract causal model from statistical data. Learning cause and effect from data. Learning cause and effect from data computationally. Right. Gotcha. Um, and there was really beautiful work and continues to be beautiful work showing how it's possible to do that. And then that got generalized to an approach that's sometimes called a Bayesian approach, where the idea is, again, think about the child as if they were a little scientist. You could think about the process of learning as a process of 
making hypotheses about what the world is mm. like, and then checking them against the data. And this, the causal Bayes-Nets were a formalism that did that for this specific problem about causality. But then it got generalized to a lot of other, uh, a lot yeah. of other examples. My collaborator uh, Tom Griffiths, who was at Berkeley, did a lot of this, did a lot of this work. And then there was a lot of excitement about that as a model for what human beings were doing, including what children were doing. But as I say, it turns out to be quite difficult to implement that in real time computers that are really doing yeah. that are doing real things. Um, not impossible, but challenging. And in parallel, it turns out that these neural network ideas that had also been around for a long time were suddenly becoming very feasible for real, genuine, real computers and solving real tasks in real time. Yeah. So I think the interesting challenge now is can we put together the theoretical ideas about Bayesian inference and structured hypotheses with the the speed and the power of some of these new neural network yeah. applications. That's and a lot of people, including me, are thinking about making hybrid models that use both that use both abilities. And as I think you could tell from that panel, um, you know, Demis Hassabis, who's the founder of DeepMind, which has been one of the great places that's been yeah. a source of advances about this, you know, he's inviting developmental psychologists like me in because I think he recognizes, as, as he said in that panel, he recognizes that the next frontiers are going to have to, we're going to have to do something new beyond what we're doing now. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, Road Station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It sounds like, ultimately, you're trying to recreate the human brain or approximate it and it feels like kids in particular because they start from a blank slate they provide a kind of a cleaner model for how that might actually work well i think there's two things they're not really a blank slate which is actually part of what's interesting about them so one of the other things we've discovered is that babies and young children are born with a lot of ideas about how the world works and it may be that because they aren't blank slates that they can learn as much as they can so one challenge is can we describe all the things that they come into the world right they come into the world knowing but there's another piece which is that i've argued and i think there's some evidence for this that children may actually be really good models because they're actually the ones who are doing most of the learning 
a child brain, I think there's reasons to believe, is actually going to be better at learning new things than an adult brain. So it's not just that children are a nice example because they're not, you know, contaminated by having school and so forth. But there may be something special about children and babies that... Well, it's creativity, right? Creativity kind of diminishes the older you get. Well, that's what we're trying to explore. That certainly seems to be what what we feel intuitively. People don't understand very much in psychology about things like curiosity and creativity. And that is a whole interesting frontier about could we be more precise about what curiosity and creativity mean. But it certainly seems on the surface as if the kids are especially curious and creative and where we have some some very recent studies that are actually showing that more systematically. But let me also say something about the, whether the robots are going to take over the world or not. That was actually my next question. <laughs> um, because it's because so I'll just preface this by yeah. I've talked to a lot of people so like a lot of like physicists or mm-hmm. engineer types, they're quite worried. Mm-hmm. And then you have computer scientists who are like, Ugh, it's all going to be fine. Autocorrect doesn't even work right yet. <laughs> like everybody settle down. Yeah. And there, it feels like there's kind of, there are obviously two ends of an, of an extreme. So I think there's two really different questions that people are raising. So one of them is you've got a new technology. It's really powerful. It could do terrible things. There's no question about that. But that's true for essentially all powerful new technologies. What you have to do is have systems for regulating and controlling mm-hmm. and making sure that they work the way that you want them to. I It was interesting. In some ways, the most interesting conversation I had at that Stanford launch was actually with someone who's been working on these problems. And he said, do you know where circuit breakers came from? And I realized, I have no idea where circuit breakers came from. And he said, well, actually, the insurance companies back in the early 20th century started insisting that we all have circuit breakers. So because, houses didn't burn down because they're losing because, too much money. Exactly. So if you think about it from the perspective of the early 20th century, there's this thing called electricity. It's burning down houses. It's this incredibly powerful new thing. And you're suggesting that you just put it in everybody's house, that we have a we have a an outlet that this incredibly powerful force that literally right. kills people and destroys things and burns down houses. We're just gonna put that in everybody's house. And the insurance company said, okay, well if we're gonna do that, here's a We need to a break. We need it. circuit breakers yeah. and we're not gonna let you put um and of course not just the insurance companies, but then the government when, right. you know, Every time you remodel, when you have to do things to code, it's because people said, if we're going to use this force for good, we're going to have to put in a really elaborate system of regulation to make sure it does what we want and not what we don't want. Mm. And I think that's absolutely analogous to um, what's happening with AI, that we're going to have to have a lot of regulation, a lot of decisions about things like, should these things be allowed to uh, be involved in weapons? What happens if we attach them to machines that can actually do things. That's a really important, serious problem. And I think there's a bit been a bit of a sorcerer's apprentice, just like there was for previous technologies, where they ended up doing things that we didn't realize they were going to do. So, you know, I think genuinely Facebook thought that this was going to be a way that you could see what your sister-in-law's yeah. kids were doing, and it is, but they didn't think about it as a... It's also undermining democracy. And yeah, helping. exactly. Yeah. That wasn't part of the original... That <laughs> wasn't that was part the of the plan. Yeah. original business plan. My husband was one of the co-founders of Pixar, and he always says one of the things about Moore's Law is, if you think of it as a an order of magnitude change every five years, 
what an order of magnitude means is that you can't envision beforehand what that order of magnitude yeah. change is going to be. So that's a part about AI that I think it's perfectly sensible. It's a powerful new technology. We need to regulate it and make sense about it and think about it really, really thoughtfully. That's undoubtedly true. But I think there's a completely different story, narrative, which is the narrative about there's a machine that's like us, that's going to be human, and that's going to come and yeah. kill us all as a result. That's the one where I think the computer scientists and psychologists, people who actually know about human intelligence, are going to be rolling our eyes because there's such an enormous gap between what um, the very best of these systems are doing mm. and and anything that we see in in human intelligence. And I think in the background to this, you know, literally going back to medieval literature, there's been these narratives about the machine that comes to life, um, the golem or Frankenstein's monster. It never ends well when a machine comes to life in, in, our, <laughs> in our human imagination, no. right? It's always, there's always something that's creepy about that. And this is, you know, before industrialization, not a, let alone before AI. So I do think there's some of the, the fear about the narrative is about this narrative about something that's kind of human, but kind of yeah. not human. And that's a scary, that's just a scary, a, a profoundly scary thing. So I don't think that narrative is, is, has any kind of force. I don't think that's something that we should be worried about, but we should be worried about regulating regulating yeah. the technology the way we should always be worried about regulating powerful Yeah, because you have Elon Musk, for example, saying, oh, we're summoning the demon. Yeah. This is an existential, this technology, If when we quote unquote get it right or get it really powerful or whether, it, in another way to think about it, if we get to artificial general intelligence, a right. thing that can think for itself that is curious and creative and more powerful than any human brain, then that's the kind of the uh-oh moment for mm -hmm. humanity. I don't think that's something that we should be worried about. One of the things that I, uh, that I say sometimes is, you know, as a mother, one of the things that you learn as a mother is you sort of have to ration your worries because there's an infinite, you probably know this as a mm -hmm. father of small children as yes. well, there is an infinite scope of worrying about a three-month-old. and a, So you sort of have to pick your battles about what are the things that you sh can worry about and what, which ones not to. I think if we're thinking about existential threats right now, climate change, you could worry about every day, 24-7, yeah. and you still wouldn't be worried enough about it. And that's an interesting example where that's the internal combustion engine, for heaven's sake, right? That's not anything that anybody thought was going to be an evil force in the world or something that yeah. we thought was going to be this mysterious human-like thing. It's just a, just an engine in a yeah. car, and it turns out that that's the thing that is the existential, the the existential threat. So right. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure the literary power of an existential threat, like we're going to have general intelligence and it, they're going to be human-like and yeah. they're going to come and kill us, is a lot stronger than our internal combustion engines in our cars are going to come and existentially kill us all. But I think at the moment, the latter threat is much more real mm -hmm. than the first threat. And, you know, who knows what will happen in the future? We know that there are computers that can think on their own and solve problems and that might be a threat to the planet because they're us. I mean, if we're cognitive scientists, we think that ultimately these creatures that are sitting in these chairs 
right now are some kind of computer. There's some kind yeah. of computational system that's going on in all of those all those neurons that's leading to us doing the things that we do, including quite possibly destroying ourselves and destroying the planet. But that computer is really, really, really different from any of the most advanced things that we could imagine that we can imagine now. And so in terms of where from where you sit, from where, where AI is right now, is the next kind of step change? Because right now it feels like we have a, a lot of machine learning where you have just like brute force computing being thrown at certain definable problems like, you know, the performance of an industrial component. You can kind of start to predict when it's going to go wrong and things like that or medical diagnostics or whatever. There are certain defined areas where over time, Computers are just going to be very, very good mm -hmm. at dealing with very narrow problems. What's the dot, dot, dot in terms of the next kind of shift in how this stuff works or how it advances? Is it around basically looking at the human brain and basically translating it into a bunch of algorithms? So again, I mean, what we try to do as cognitive scientists is exactly that. What we want to try to do is understand, for instance, how it is that, that you know, babies and young children, a three-month-old who looks so apparently helpless and doesn't yeah. have all the infrastructure of education and so forth can learn as much as they can. And we're mm. still very, very far from solving that problem. But we think that solving that problem is going to be some kind of computational story and we have bits and pieces of answers to that problem already now we don't know that progress might very well help us to think about how we could actually design systems that could do analogous things but of course it might be that we don't want to design systems that can do the things that that humans can do we want systems that can do the things that humans are really bad at doing like processing enormous amounts right. of data so one of the things that we're going to have to decide in terms of our future decisions about what kinds of systems to actually build is how much do we want to leverage the things that computers are really good at, like dealing with lots of data, going very quickly, versus the things they're very bad at, like creativity and and curiosity. And, you know, I think a vision that is possibly as unrealistic as the dystopian visions, but still a, rel a relevant utility more utopian vision would be one of the things that industrialization did was in a way to turn people into computers. So one of the characteristics of life in the 19th and 20th century was having an awful lot of people doing tasks that we know that computers can do, like, yeah. you know, being bookkeepers or accountants or, or typing pools or typing pools or, you know, Bob Cratchit sitting at his desk and moving numbers around. Now we have systems that can do those yeah. kinds of things. It might be that that will liberate us to be able to do the creative, curious things that are uniquely human, the same way that, to a large extent, industrialization liberated us from having to do all those physical kinds of tasks. That would be a, a kind of best-case scenario, so that the things that humans are really good at doing, we could concentrate on doing, like yeah. caring for other people or being curious. And the machines could do a lot of things that, in fact, now humans are doing, but that it's not obvious that are the best uses of our computational power. Now, again, there's going to be real serious, difficult issues about how that transition will take place. But those are 
again, not different in kind from other kinds of transitions. And how far along are we or not in understanding or truly kind of unlocking how the brain works? I think we're very, very far from understanding it, but... Like just in the foothills. Yeah, just barely in the foothills. Right. Um, And again, one of the nice things about being a developmental psychologist is that every day these tiny little creatures with no power and no authority and no status just stun you with the amount that they can mm-hmm. amount the amount they can do and the amount they can learn in ways that we just aren't even in the ballpark of starting to understand. Right. So I think it's going to be a very long time before we have anything that looks like a complete understanding if indeed we yeah. if indeed we ever do and things like our capacities for consciousness or experience that's an example of something that we really don't understand hardly at all at at the moment. So I think there's going to be a long way before we can get that kind of understanding of what we can do. But in the meantime, some things like figuring out what it would be like if you had a system that was curious and was deciding Mm. which kind of data to get, that's something that I think we could do. And that is something that we could, and something that we could implement in a computational system. But, you know, another thing to say about Moore's law is that it's been very unpredictable about which things were going to work and which things weren't. So I think even the people who designed the neural net algorithms, like the people who just got the Turing Prize, uh, Jeff Hinton, who I've known for a long time, I'm not sure he knew that the last five years those ideas were going to explode in the way that they have or that they were going to turn out to be as feasible as they were. Or that the invention of the internet, which was a completely orthogonal invention, was going to mean that you could leverage millions of human beings to do a lot of your work for you. The human beings are doing these like, they're the ones who are labeling those pictures and putting the, giving the examples for the machines to use. So I think that was all very contingent and and sort of unpredictable as often in technology. We don't, can't tell in advance which things are going to turn out to be productive and which things aren't. But certainly in principle, I mean, for instance, DARPA, you know, which is the the kind of uh, advanced Pentagon's research arm. Exactly. So the place that sort of invented computers and the internet just put out a call uh, for projects that include both developmental psychologists and computer scientists very explicitly to try to solve some of these problems. So that's at least an indicator. Oh, this is, it's, what are the, it has a f- kind of a catchy name. It's like the common sense. Machine common sense. Yeah. So that's, again, you know, DARPA sometimes has winners and losers, but yeah. But they've got a pretty good track record for finding, seeing where the, what the next cutting edge thing is going to be. Right. Uh, and I have to say, I, I kind of almost morally like the idea that these babies and children who nobody pays much attention to, they don't have very much money, they don't have very much status, they're just little, they're the kind of stuff that women pay attention to. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the fact that they might turn out to be something that we should have really been paying attention to all along. Well, it would be kind of, (laughs) I can see the movie now, (laughs) you know, a Pentagon research lab full of babies yeah, and guys in white coats trying to figure out how these little beings are actually learning and then turning that into whatever. Yeah. Well, that's a creepy version of it. I, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> I like the idea of them going out to preschool teachers um, mm. and the preschool teachers actually turning out to be the ones who are the uh, the great force in the universe, which I think is probably See, right. See, that's more like a, like a rom-com, like a four-star general and the preschool teacher, they get together to create an AI that saves <laughs> the world or something. Some, something like that. <laughs>
Um, to your point of the kind of, you can never predict how this is going to go, mm-hmm. but it is interesting that if the goal is to try to create this kind of super intelligent, capable computing systems that you have to kind of go back to first principles, i.e. babies. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, again, we don't know, we don't know how it's going to go, but I think, I think that's a really interesting, I think that's a really interesting productive set of ideas. And you could also think of it as being kind of like a, a really vivid instance of what's sometimes called Moravich's paradox that's been characteristic of AI all along, which is that the things that we thought, I, I described them once as being the corridas of nerd machismo, like playing chess. The, the, um, I I'm think, totally lost now. Uh, well, nerd machismo, I think, is a very a very helpful concept. Yeah. It's a, there's a particular kind of, you wouldn't necessarily think those two things would go together, yeah, but if yeah, you've yeah. been hanging around the tech industry, mm-hmm. you know that they do. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, and the things that were sort of the greatest examples of human intelligence, like playing chess, turn out to be those turn out to be pretty easy, or at least not. Yeah, those are like the difficult. first parlor tricks of AI. Yeah, like, that's oh, right. Oh well, that look, look. This is, I mean, that's kind of child's play. Or proving theorems, even, or yeah. doing math, things that you think would be really, really, really hard and require incredible and highest levels of intelligence. Whereas it turns out that things like playing Addy chess or learning a first language or figuring out common sense principles about, you know, the fact that when you let go of objects, they fall, things that feel as if they're much more sort of like, well, that doesn't count as being intelligence, right? Every baby figures that out. Those turn out to be the really hard problems and the really distinctively and the really distinctively human problems. And I think that's been true all along in the history of AI. And this is like the latest iteration of that, the latest iteration of that paradox. What is funny talking about the kind of nerdy chess beating of kind of place or vibe that this place has it does feel that that kind of admitting that you have to be like okay actually we need to kind of completely reapproach this from a different way it's just really that juxtaposition as you say is specifically here which is in tech industry so male and so mm-hmm. as you say kind of macho in a weird way yeah. it does feel like it's going to kind of require it's it's a bit of a they, people are gonna have to change their chip a bit yeah, and I think that, but I think that's happening. And one of the wonderful things about engineers, as I've discovered, is, you know, they really want to make things work. And they're very willing, in some ways, more willing than scientists are to yeah. say, oh, okay, this thing that I was using isn't working. I can find out something by looking at babies. I would never have thought about looking at babies before. That's funny. I didn't yeah. even quite realize that they were around, but. I can learn something from them. Now I'm going to go and find out yeah. about babies. And that's that's actually a very childlike quality. <laughs> that, that's, that's kind of like what the babies are like themselves. This yes. is interesting. This is cool. Yeah. Let me find out about this. So just to kind of wrap up, is it is it fair to think that 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 this approach of kind of going back to first, you know, first principles, so to speak, and looking at how child brains etc work that that is the kind of on the kind of one of the leading edges of how ai is being thought of and approached now i think that's exactly right yeah i think that's exactly right the general idea of that the way to go is to develop these more structured models and combine them with the deep learning i think that's very much in the air as the next 
the next step. And it's partly this inevitable back and forth that you see in AI and you see in cognitive science from, here's a way that I would describe the biggest, deepest, one of the biggest, deepest problems that we have as as cognitive scientists and psychologists and machine and AI people is, look, you go out and you look in the world and we know an incredible amount about the world, some of it built in and some of it things yeah. that we learn. But the only information that comes to us from the world is a bunch of photons hitting the back of our retinas and disturbances of air at our ears. And the puzzle is, how could we get to these really powerful, structured, generative models and representations from that very, very limited kind of data? And going back really to Plato and Aristotle, the two ways of thinking about it have been, well, let's really emphasize the representations, how powerful the representations are. And then the other thing has been, let's really pay attention to the data. Let's really pay attention to how much data there is. And AI and, for that matter, philosophy and psychology have always sort of gone back and forth, sort of ping-ponged back and forth between saying, oh, it's the structured representations that are really important to, no, no, it's the data that's really important. And I think we're in one of those, we're in one of those cycles now where the success of deep learning has meant people really paying attention to the data. And now we're starting yeah. to realize, oh, no, now we have to start paying attention to the knowledge itself. And, and hopefully at some point, and again, this is one of the nice things that, that doing developmental psychology tells you is that if you actually are looking at kids, you have to say, no, both of those things are important. Kids are both pulling out a lot of data in ways that we don't understand and reacting to it and building these abstract models. And if we could figure out how you combine both of those, that would really be the key to seeing how you solve that kind of problem. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Allison for letting me in her house, even though she'd forgotten. Uh, <laughs> she was still kind enough to accommodate. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I find it, especially with not one, but two very small humans in the house, I found the conversation super interesting. That is it for this week. If you want to read what I'm up to, check out the Sunday Times. Um, you can also go online at thetimes.co.uk. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. I'm also on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. That is all I have. And with that, I will leave you with these very, very wise words. Bye-bye. Daddy Fortson. Daddy Fortson. <laughs> What does that mean? Who's Danny Forsen? Cool. Yeah? Danny Forsen is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what are you eating? I eat avocado. Okay. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.